Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back with you all. I don't think I've been here since December, so it feels really good to be back again. And I'm very grateful for the beautiful weather that we have today. I feel like we deserve it after the past couple of weeks that we've had. And happy Easter. Um, I know that a lot of us are here because we've heard a lot of toxic Easter sermons that drove us away from those places and to this place. And I know that it's really popular in UU churches on Easter Sunday to preach a kind of nature-y, um, you know, new life uh, sermon. But I really feel called today to preach like a Easter sermon. <laughs> so I hope for the next 15, 20 minutes, you will all indulge me in Easter sermon. Um, you don't have to believe it really happened. I'm not gonna ask you to take any of it literally, but just come along with me on this ride while we like preach a real Easter sermon, is that all right? All right, thank you. I, you know, there, I was excited to preach on Easter. There are so many beautiful and interesting resurrection and post-resurrection stories in the Christian tradition, even just right from a literary standpoint. Um, stories filled with miracles and forgiveness and travels and shared meals, and I really love them. They're fun stories. Um, and I think as Unitarian Universalist, we can have a lot of fun with Christian scripture. These stories are our inheritance, right? We come from two faiths that until our consolidation in the 1960s were considered Christian and that historically took the reasoned study of scripture extremely seriously. So these stories get to be ours too. Don't let anyone tell you that they aren't. Um, and as people who have embraced the idea that the sources of love and truth and justice are so much more expansive than what's captured in those books, we are not anymore wedded just to Christian scripture. And I think the freedom that comes with that gives us so much more room to explore and play and question and doubt and get really imaginative about what those stories may still have to say or not say to us today. So I really thought I was gonna preach maybe a little irreverently about one of the really fun ones, or ones that I think are really fun, right? The passage in John, where Jesus appears to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee and proceeds to have what I like to refer to as a beach barbecue, right? Just a breakfast of bread and grilled fish with his disciples right there on the shore. Or maybe Mary Magdalene mistaking the resurrected Jesus for the gardener, a story that I find both tender and also curious, right? The implications there that the resurrected son of God looks kind of like a day laborer. Like, what are we supposed to make of that one? So there are so many like really fun stories. But these past few weeks, it has felt hard to be too lighthearted about the idea of life overcoming death. There has been so much death and so much injustice and so much righteous anger. I am not particularly in the mood for resurrection. See, destruction necessarily comes before resurrection, and there are so many unjust systems that we have yet to destroy. I am still in the burn it all down mode. I'm angry and sad and a little scared, and I'm not ready for Easter. But it turns out I'm not alone. And that's why as much as I love those stories and Matthew and Luke and John, I find myself this Easter Sunday turning instead to the Gospel of Mark. So how many of you grew up going to a Christian church on Easter Sunday? All right, it's most everyone. 
Do you remember which scriptures were read or which Easter stories were told in your church? Maybe. I'm guessing maybe John, right? John gets read a lot on Easter Sunday. Or Mary Magdalene and Peter and the beloved disciple discover the empty tomb. That's the one where John talks about himself like outrunning Peter, <laughs> right? Which I always think is really funny. Um, uh, and that's where Jesus appears to weeping Mary Magdalene and says, woman, why are you crying? Or Matthew, you have Jesus appearing to the women at the tomb and instructs them to go and tell his disciples. Um, but does anyone remember reading the Gospel of Mark on Easter? Does anyone remember how or where the resurrected Jesus appears in the Gospel of Mark? Thomas, Thomas is John. This is a hard question, it's a trick question, and it's because he doesn't, at least not originally. Let me read you the original ending to the Gospel of Mark. This is the earliest of the New Testament Gospels, the first one that was written. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus's body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The end. Surprised? Hmm. I am, as someone who has been proselytized to more than once. It is amazing to me that the earliest gospel account of the Christian faith, a faith synonymous with the idea of spreading the good news, ends with, they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. These women were not ready for Easter either. And they were in many ways the best of us. They were loyal and faithful to the end. They were caring and brave and tender. I mean, after all, they were there to anoint the body of their beloved friend who just days earlier had been executed by the state. But they were not yet ready to believe in the miracle of new life, and they certainly weren't ready to talk about it. And I don't blame them. Proclaiming resurrection is dangerous. For one, you might be wrong. And either way, right or wrong, the price might be ostracization, imprisonment, or crucifixion. These women in Mark, all they had to go off of was faith and the words of a strange young man in a white robe. Mark doesn't even name him as an angel. And as much as they might want or even need to believe that life had overcome death, that an age of peace and justice was dawning and all had been made new again, or more simply, that their beloved friend was still with them somehow, they didn't have very reliable evidence. 
We have to wait another few decades before the Gospel of John comes along with the very evidence-laden story, right, of doubting Thomas, seeing and touching Jesus' wounds. It's John that gives us CSI Jerusalem. <laughs> and Mark, all we get is an empty tomb and the words of a stranger. I think I feel so drawn to this gospel story this year because right now it feels really hard to believe that life will conquer death. To believe that there is a light shining in the darkness and the darkness won't overcome it. We are, like the women at the tomb, sorely lacking in evidence. And it feels scary to believe in those things, right? What if I'm wrong? Can I handle the disappointment if I believe so hard in beauty amidst the brokenness, only to watch that beauty disappear. Another school shooting or climate change-fueled natural disaster, a forest cut down to build a shrine to capitalism or militarism, a queer youth robbed of their joy. We deny resurrection as a way to steel ourselves against that pain. If we don't believe it, we won't get hurt. And like the women in Mark's gospel, even if we let ourselves believe in resurrection, we fear proclaiming it. In part because we are, in real time, watching the price that is paid for those who do. Our children went out in the streets this week announcing that this was the beginning of a new world, a world free from gun violence. They marched and rallied and told us that life will Life must defeat death. Our youth proclaimed resurrection loudly and clearly, and they were met with letters from school administrators about unexcused absences and the penalties for missing class. They were met with accusations of insurrection and heartless, cowardly votes that ignored their cries and buttressed their fears. And three brave lawmakers stood beside those children and their parents the constituents they swore an oath to serve. They too said death stops now. We must usher in a new kingdom, a beloved community where our children don't fear for their safety going to school, to church, to the playground. They too proclaimed resurrection and they were stripped of their committee assignments, denied access to the people's house to which they were democratically elected and two of them Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, two young black men, were expelled from the Tennessee House of Representatives. And for months, our trans children and siblings have shown up at state houses, rallies, and courthouses, showing us the beauty and power of new life, life lived truthfully and abundantly in defiance of the death-dealing forces of a transphobic society, asking for nothing more and nothing less than the ability to live fully and joyfully into their sacred and holy identities. Their very presence announcing that we get to participate with the divine and the co-creation of life. They have proclaimed resurrection and in response have been met with hate and threats and legislation that denies their full humanity and strips away their safety and bodily autonomy. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Proclaiming resurrection is dangerous. You might be wrong, and either way, the price might be crucifixion. But that, my friends, is not a very good selling point for a religion. 
So at some point, later authors decided to add on to Mark. They made it match up better with the other Gospels and tied it all together into a neat little bow. In this version, a resurrected Jesus appears first to Mary Magdalene and then to two disciples and then to the rest. This alternate ending that is listed in most translations of the Bible as an alternate ending that's added later reads this way. Later, he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were sitting at the table and he upbraided them for their lack of faith and stubbornness because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the good news to the whole creation. The one who believes and is baptized will be saved, but the one who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. By using my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes, and if they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and set down at the right hand of God. And they went out and proclaimed the good news everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by the signs that accompanied it. I'm not buying it. It feels too easy and too tidy. It doesn't feel true, and it certainly doesn't feel relevant this week. So is this what the earliest Easter account has to offer us this morning? A choice between fear and silence, or a tacked on fairy tale ending that lets us skip over any of the hard work of building the kingdom of peace and justice here on earth? We could decide yes, right? We're UUs after all. We are well within our rights to say this is a useless story with an unsatisfying ending and we will find our hope elsewhere. We can do that. I won't get mad if you do that when you leave here today. <laughs> But I am not ready to give up on Mark just yet. And I'll tell you why. It's these short sentences from the original ending. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. See, Mark doesn't actually leave us hanging hopelessly, caught indefinitely in disbelief, fear, and silence. Instead, it sends us back to the beginning. See, the Gospel of Mark begins in the city of Galilee. And biblical scholars and theologians who know more about this stuff than I do think the ending of Mark is a kind of literary device. You will see him in Galilee. To believe in resurrection, to find the proof that life overcomes death, go back to the beginning. Go back to where the story started. That is where you will find the risen Jesus. With the gathering of disciples, the feeding of the hungry, the healing of the sick, and the meal shared with friends. We will find our proof of resurrection, not in apparitions, not in supposed confirmed and corroborated sightings, or in literally touching Jesus' wounds, but rather in the journey we make together, in the work we do, and in the embrace of the community we do it in. I think that there are two lessons that we can take from this as we confront our own fears and doubts and moments of hopelessness in Tennessee 2,000 years after the events of that first Easter. The first is that in those hopeless moments, when it feels impossible to publicly proclaim belief in resurrection, when we are too scared to stand with the forces of life over death, we too can return to the building blocks of our faith, 
Whether that's your version of gathering disciples by finding a few friends to help you clean up a trail or phone bank, volunteer at a food pantry or show up at a rally, or by breaking bread together around a dinner table, inviting those you might not usually invite, we can return to practicing healing and forgiveness in small and important ways within our own relationships. We can return to community, to local organizing, to caring for each other. We can even return to that wrestling in the wilderness, right? Taking time to remember why you're traveling this road in the first place. What grounds you? What motivates you? What are your values? We can return to those fundamental questions and simple local acts to nourish us for the work ahead. And in doing so, we find that the evidence of resurrection was present there all along, in new babies and new friendships, in every flower or vegetable tended in a garden and fed with the nutrients of decomposition. And this brings me to the second lesson I think we can learn from the original ending of Mark. And that's about the cyclical nature of life and the work for justice and liberation. Because there is more work ahead. And Mark, just when we think the resurrection has happened, we are sent back to the beginning. Because Easter is not a one and done kind of affair. We have to keep doing the work to build the kingdom of God, to build the beloved community. And by doing so, by doing that work, we will be drawn deeper into community, deeper into the way of love. And we will face pain and we will face failure. Good Friday will come again, but so will Easter Sunday. This is what poet Wendell Berry recognized in his poem Manifesto when he says to practice resurrection, right? Practice resurrection. Or what Adrienne Rich is getting at in her poem from Dream of a Common Language when she writes, my heart is moved by all I cannot save. So much has been destroyed. I have to cast my lot with those who age after age, perversely and with no extraordinary power, reconstitute the world. Mark is both difficult and hopeful precisely because it doesn't let us off the hook. Difficult because it doesn't offer us reassurance that things have been solved for good but we can look around us and see that's not the case. So it's hopeful because it reminds us that our work here is possible and is necessary. We aren't supposed to just sit on our hands waiting for proof of resurrection. Age after age, we go back to the beginning. We start again. We do the work to reconstitute the world. What a beautiful paradox. Resurrection requires our work but that work is where we find the evidence of resurrection. The kingdom is found in the building of the kingdom. The beloved community is right there in the coming together to work for beloved community. So if, like the women in Mark, if like me, you're not ready today for the certainty and finality of Easter, if you are angry and scared and full of doubt, maybe we can at least commit to going back to Galilee together. We can recommit ourselves to the work ahead in small, steady, faithful ways, trusting that the proof of life's victory over death 
is found in the journey. I'd like to close with a prayer written by UU Minister, Reverend Julia Hamilton. Spirit of hope, settle into our bones on this Easter morning. Remind us once again that the dawn light is never a gamble. If there ever was a sure bet, it is the sunrise. Even stones crumble, even grief changes and shifts, and death is a mystery that is certain but not solid. But hope is like the sunrise, eternal and bone-bred within us. We are creatures built by sunshine and cannot carve this hope out of our bones if we tried. And yet people have tried, tried to entomb the light, tried to seal off the morning. Emperors and kings, priests and patriarchs have brought down death, certain but not solid, on any who point to a new dawn. In these fearful moments, we can be forgiven if we stumble and doubt and deny. But still the sun rises and calls her children into bloom. Always, she says, always I will return. So don't despair. All is not lost. The small ways of the petty tyrants never win. So place your money on the sunrise. Who are we to bet against glory? May it be so, and amen.